You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, January 18, 2023. I'm sorry that it's working out this way, but your insurance company is in the way of us getting your surgery scheduled. Later in the program, Diljeet Singh, MD, Vice President of Physicians for a National Health Program, joins us on a new edition of Prescription for Healthcare. More in the bottom half of our program. This has been one of the coldest weeks we get in a typical year, even colder than you'd find in a lot of years. So it is extreme, um, but nothing we haven't seen before in the Midwest. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Elise Perry delivers a report on the recent cold front that hit the Midwest. That's coming up next in your daily headlines. At the Richland Bean Blossom School Board meeting, Board member Dana Kerr was re-elected as president of the board. Board member Jimmy Durnell was elected as vice president of the board. Board member Larry DeMoss was elected as the secretary for the board. Next, Dr. Jerry Sanders asked the board to approve the establishment of board compensation for 2024. Yes, so at the annual uh, board organizational meeting, uh, you must approve the uh, compensation amount uh, the board will receive for the calendar year 2024. Uh, the per diem amount has uh, been set at $112 per regular board meeting and $62 for other board meetings, such as executive sessions, work sessions, etc. cetera. Uh, by law, these amounts are based on uh, actually the Indianapolis City Council uh, per diem amount and the uh, per diem amount set by the Indiana uh, Public Schools um, Board. And uh, so the city, uh, Indianapolis City Council has already approved uh, an increase, uh, an increase of up to $150 per regular meeting uh, and $75 for other meetings. Now, as I said, the uh, Indianapolis City Council has already met and approved that. The I IPS will meet tonight to set their per diem compensation. Uh, so I recommend that the board uh, uh, approve a compensation amount for 2024 set at the, uh, ma the maximum amount allowed by state law, which is $150 per regular meeting and $75 per other meetings. The maximum per year remains at $2,000. The board compensation was approved unanimously. The Richland Bean Blossom School Board will meet again for their regularly scheduled board meeting on January 16th. On January 8th, the Ellsville Town Council approved the purchase of an easement for the installation of a water line. Town Manager Mike Farmer talked about needing this easement for the utilities to build a new 12-inch water line to replace the current six-inch water line. Okay, well, first of all, uh, the water line project is part of our uh, rate um, study. Uh, it's on the capital project list. And um, we are going to be replacing what was originally the 
water main from the wells out west of town. So it's 60 year old plus water main. It's six inch. Uh, it was before they lined them with uh, concrete linings. It needs replaced. Uh, so uh, part of our master plan for the entire um, town, um, which is at least 40 years old, was to uh, provide a 12-inch water line out into, onto that property. And in fact, from there, back to Reeves Road to, to complete a loop of 12-inch water main. He continued and outlined the cost of the project. There's uh, 3.645 acres that we need for an easement. Um, just, I'm, I'm looking, so I'll just make sure I get this right here. 1.215 acres uh, is permanent, and 2.43 acres is temporary. And so what you'll have is a 20-foot wide permanent easement and a 40-foot wide temporary easement for construction. So total price is $66,825. Farmer said the town already has the financial resources to purchase the necessary property for the easement. Um, we actually have approximately $453,000 left over from the secondary water line that we've never used for anything. It's just been in a, a cash account. Uh, after we did the secondary water line and as part of our rate study, it was included in, in some of the uh, capital uh, projects that we do. So we're going to spend it first. And this was all went through the IRC. And so the money will come from that. Councilmember Dan Swafford posed a question about the availability of the land for purchase and the possibility of using eminent domain. Town Attorney Darla Brown responded that while the council has met requirements for eminent domain, that is not the only way forward. The eminent domain statutes require only that if, if a municipality wants to purchase property, the municipality provide the property owner with an appraisal or some other evidence showing how the amount was calculated, which is why I suggested that you go under those statutes. That does not mean that if Mr. Umbarger or Mr. Farmer can't agree that you have to proceed with eminent domain. The council members agreed to attempt a negotiated settlement for the property at $66,825. The Ellisville Town Council will meet again on January 22nd. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Elise Perry reports on a cold spell that hit the Midwest recently. We turn to Perry for more. An Arctic blast struck Bloomington this past week, putting temperatures as low as negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit with wind chills below negative 10 degrees. During the same time last year, the average temperature was 37 degrees Fahrenheit and the wind chill was around 30 degrees. Coming on the heels of 2023 being the warmest year on record, this cold spell is to be expected, according to James Ryan, an IU PhD candidate specializing in weather patterns and cold extremes. This has been one of the coldest weeks you get in a typical year, even colder than you'd find in a lot of years. So it is extreme, um, but nothing we haven't seen before in the Midwest. Um, a similar event will probably happen again in a couple years. 
and it'll probably keep being that way. He added that this weather is not a direct result of a changing climate. We live in uh, the northern United States, which is a region that gets cold sometimes. Um, The global average temperature has increased by about one degree Celsius or about two degrees Fahrenheit, which is a large and unambiguous signal. Um, But that's not enough to mean that the Midwest will stop having winters. Despite the Arctic temperatures, Bloomingtonians have been trying to proceed as normal. Bloomington native Kat Seltz said while it changes her daily desires and goals, she enjoys the weather. It makes me want to snuggle, it makes me want to cook and read and really enjoy the sun coming into my house and all in my kitty cats. It makes me want to get outside, get some of this stuff, the sunshine and the vitamin D. And I gotta say, you gotta get out there. It's like taking a cold shower or taking that plunge in the lake and just give your system a teeny bit of a shock each day to get your metabolism woken up. It's so important. Seltz was raised in Bloomington, but has since lived in many places in the country. She said that this past week was nothing compared to Minnesota winters. Plummeting winter temperatures pose an impact on utilities we take for granted, such as water, vehicles, and electricity. Bloomington utilities suggest allowing water to drip from faucets, leaving cabinet doors open, and covering outdoor water lines to prevent pipes from freezing. For vehicle safety, check your vehicle's tire pressure and anti-freeze levels, and keep a winter safety kit in your vehicle. In extreme cases, low temperatures can cause ice buildups on power lines, leading to power outages. In the case of a power outage, Interim Fire Department Chief Roger Kerr says it's important to be careful with alternative heating measures. Trying to stay warm, people start to burn wood or whatever they have, which can lead to uh, fires, especially for the unhoused if they're using uh, vacant buildings or their tents and trying to stay warm in those, it can, it can lead to some issues with that. So, you know, just got to be very mindful of um, not having open flames around stuff that can catch fire, you know, their clothing or their tents or that kind of thing. And then any other kind of devices, especially if people... Um, the heat goes out and they try to use like their gas stoves, they could get CO built up in their house, which can lead to uh, health problems. So people just have to be really cautious about uh, using alternate forms of heat to try to stay warm uh, other than their furnaces. If you are in need of a warm place to go, Bloomington Fire Department Stations 1 and 2 are staying open as warming stations until January 20th. So the Emergency Management Agency of Monroe County asked us if we would have a couple warming stations in our fire, in our firehouses. So we have two fire stations, this one here and one on uh, Franklin Drive, which is on the west side, that are warming stations from 8 to 6, which started on Saturday and runs to Saturday, this coming Saturday. So between those hours, somebody could come in, warm up, get a chance to kind of get the chill off, and then uh, the shelters open back up at 6, and then they could go back to the shelter in the evenings. Other warming stations are available around Bloomington and Monroe County. The full list can be found on WFHB.org. For WFHB, this is Elise Perry. In today's feature report, we have a prescription for healthcare a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and Medicare for All Indiana. This month, hosts Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone interview Diljeet Singh, MD, Vice President of Physicians for a National Health Program and a gynecologic oncologist and surgeon about moral injury. This continues our conversation from December in an interview with Dr. Carol Paris, 
Moral injury is described as a specific trauma that arises when people face situations that deeply violate their conscience or threaten their core values. We turn to Prescription for Healthcare on the WFHB Local News. Indiana, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. I'm Karen Greenstone, along with Dr. Rob Stone. Hello. Today on Prescription for Healthcare, we will be talking with Dr. Diljeet Singh. Dr. Singh specializes as an integrative gynecologic oncologist and women's health advocate. She also has a doctoral degree in public health. She is the Vice President of Physicians for a National Health Program, PNHP. Dr. Singh lives in Norfolk, Virginia. Welcome to Prescription for Healthcare, Dr. Singh. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you both for having me. Dr. Singh recently participated with Dr. Carol Paris, our guest last month on Prescription for Healthcare, at the annual meeting of PNHP in a breakout session to talk about moral injury. I hope listeners who have not heard the interview with Dr. Carol Paris will listen to it on the WFHP website. Moral injury is described as a specific trauma that arises when people face situations that deeply violate their conscience or threaten their core values. Those who grapple with it can struggle with guilt, anger, and a consuming sense that they can't forgive themselves or others. Dr. Diljeet Singh, Will you please tell our listeners about your discussion with your physician colleagues at the PNHP annual meeting? Thanks so much for talking about this. And it was really a wonderful discussion. Carol and I weren't sure how it would be perceived or taken up. And certainly we tend to have very policy-driven sessions on reviewing legislation and looking at what's out there. And we weren't sure if this would resonate And it was really quite amazing. The other part of it that was really impressive to me was that over half of the group who came to our session were medical students. And to me, that spoke volumes to how much people are thinking and feeling, but especially people entering the field who are looking at it almost from the outsiders still, right? Medical students are obviously on the inside, but have not yet been in practice. And the thing we heard from several students was that they could see things that weren't working, but their perception was that the attending physicians they were working with didn't feel comfortable expressing their dissatisfaction with the system or problems they were having. And I think that is a big part of it. Certainly how I was taught when we had trouble in our clinic and something was a mess, you automatically apologize for it or Somebody has to wait, but you apologize for it. And I certainly spent a certain amount of time apologizing for, I'm so sorry, your insurance company doesn't cover this, or I'm sorry, we haven't been able to schedule your surgery yet because it hasn't been approved yet. I really learned in a way that I can say, I'm sorry that it's working out this way, but your insurance company is in the way of us getting your surgery scheduled and we're working with them as best we can. But 
this piece of how hard it is to, for students, for example, to see somebody come into the emergency room and not understand why we just can't take care of them and fix something. And for students, it seems like such an obvious problem versus for an attending who has gotten in trouble for their uncovered billing or whatever it is, that's not something they're going to see in the same way. And so it was very interesting to me what resonated with the students. And then, of course, our PHP members who have this strong sense of needing to fix a system that is being driven by profit motives as opposed to patient-centered motives, but not always giving voice to this feeling of we're just not doing the right thing. And I think that's really challenging. Earlier, we were talking a little bit about this issue of morality in this setting of practicing medicine. And for a very long time, certainly when I went to med school in the early 90s, we just talked about doing the best thing for patients and helping patients make the best decisions they could. And over time, these changes have happened slowly that, oh, this might be the best drug, but wait, your prescription plan doesn't cover it. Or you really should get your surgery within four weeks of cancer diagnosis, but we haven't gotten it cleared by insurance. And we can't get your echocardiogram because those aren't available or you have to see a cardiologist before you can do the discomfort of not giving the best care. To me, that's moral injury. And we don't describe it that way because that seems rather prima donna dramatic, but it is dramatic. Patients trust us to do the best thing for them and to not have what's the bottom line on how much it costs to run my clinic. They trust that we are not using those kinds of variables. And it's very interesting to me. I feel like we tend to be a very black and white society. A journalist reached out and wanted to get stories of doctors being told by insurance companies to write down the wrong diagnosis. That's pretty black and white, but it doesn't happen quite that way for most physicians, right? Number one, the insurance company doesn't talk to me. My practice manager talks to me or the hospital administrator talks to me. They don't tell me to do the wrong thing. They just remind me that if I put more diagnoses on there that the patient really does have, that we'll get paid more. And we're just doing the right thing in the system, right? And so I think that gray zone of what's truly overbilling. Yes, there's times that as a surgeon, I have to think really hard about patients having diabetes and Absolutely. That's part of the diagnosis that I talked to them about at this visit beyond just endometrial cancer. And for most of us who've been in practice, it's happened slowly and gradually. And the rationalization of we're doing the best we can as opposed to I'm here today every minute with every patient I see to do the best for them as individuals. That's a space I think we have to empower physicians to feel comfortable in again. I think you touched on my next question for you, uh, Dr. Singh, because you specialize in women's illnesses that leave patients emotionally and physically exhausted and vulnerable. And this must be difficult, very difficult for you too. Will you please talk about your understanding of how moral injury impacts your relationships with your patients? You've talked about it a little bit. Do you have anything that you can add to that? There's so many levels to that that question. It's a great question. We did talk a little bit about it already, but I think, Karen, if for patients, they want to trust us and they should be able to trust us. And the weaving in of money and profit is really challenging. Where I am now, I think 
certainly for many years, I felt very comfortable apologizing for the system. A patient deserves an apology. But do I need to apologize when a patient's insurance company just won't approve a PET scan? Do I need to apologize for a delay in surgery because we can't get it scheduled because we can't get it approved? What I've learned is I absolutely feel terrible. I do need to tell people, and I will. I'm so sorry, Mrs. Smith. I had told you we should do your surgery within a month, but we just can't get it scheduled. But then I do talk about why in a way that I don't own. Patients are very understanding of that. And that's the hardest thing in a way is that I say your insurance company is requesting information and it's been faxed to them twice and my office has talked to them and I've talked to them, but we haven't quite gotten it cleared yet. I don't know, truthfully, if it's the right thing, but I think it's the only thing we can do is share the information that's there. I think for a long time, for example, doctors didn't talk about financial toxicity of cancer care. And we didn't necessarily tell patients, this is more expensive than this. Sure, we told them about the side effects and the nausea and the vomiting that they might have. But when I don't know if United covers it different than Aetna covers it different than Blue Cross Blue Shield covers it, it's really hard to be responsible for that. But in terms of my relationship with patients on a one-to-one level, I try to be as open with them about the process and support them as best we can. On a bigger picture, though, I do think that a patient who walks into my office today is less likely to trust me than a patient who walked in 10 years ago. And do I think she's wrong about that? I don't think she's wrong. She's heard the stories of people being recommended tests that they didn't need that then they had to go and get. And so are there reasons for at the outset without ever having had any interactions with me that people come in? with a different level of trust. Absolutely. Mm. You know, and I, and I think it makes it challenging for both of us, me and my patient, for us to go through the process of talking about a life-threatening illness that's going to require really challenging treatments, whether it's surgery or chemo or radiation or that combination. I think it is really hard. And I think this issue of moral injury is really tied to this trust and patient's trust that I will do the right thing for them, that my moral compass will lead me to recommend the best things for them. And that's not what we're always able to do. To some extent, a patient can really talk to me about what her life goals are. My goal is to make it to my daughter's wedding. And I understand I have limited time, but I'm willing to undergo some highly toxic therapy that maybe only has a 15% chance of working because maybe it'll get me to that time. Now, could I have that same conversation about I'm trying to decide if I should spend the $500 on whatever, a trip with my family or a new computer or something for my children, or should I spend it on this MRI so we can have better pictures of the ovary? That's a challenging space, and I'm not sure for me or a patient if we should be having those conversations, but maybe we should. But we certainly can't have them in a system where People get five minutes for a follow-up OBGYN visit and 15 minutes for a new visit or whatever it might be in whatever system. And to tie it to single payer, I do think that, that the chief moral injury, the main one that comes is the fight between the best thing for an individual patient and making money for a system. And, and that's the crux of the problem. Is it all the problems? It's not all the problems, right? We, we were talking earlier about integrative medicine and 
bringing in other aspects of care and are we focusing enough on lifestyle? Nah. But certainly, as long as there is a third person in the system who's just trying to make money, that's going to disrupt that sense of trust and openness. And I think no matter what, nobody becomes a physician who isn't interested in doing the best thing for the patient, whether it's the patient in front of them or the research that they're doing for the hundred patients in their study or for everybody with ovarian cancer, but ultimately trying to do the best that we can for people, give them the longest, best quality life we can, help them make the best decisions. Those things, those things only suffer when we bring money and finances into the conversation when there's a third party who's making money from this, not making decisions about the best way to spend the money we have. You've basically answered my last question, but if you would like to add to it, what is your prescription for healthcare? Certainly, I think we have lots of prescriptions. I think the idea that we take the profit motive out and that we don't waste our money on administration and paying billers and paying people to figure out what Aetna covers and what United covers, but we take that money and we spend it on health. I think that's a huge part of the prescription for healthcare. The other pieces of does American medicine need to own lifestyle and prevention and what are all the ways we live that impact our health and the health of the people around us. I think we need to do that too. I think that's also part of the solution. But again, I think if we took the profit motive out that led us to use diagnoses that made us focus on di diseases instead of health, I think maybe we never would have gotten to that messy place that we don't own. We, when I say we, I see in American medicine and the medical system that we don't own prevention. I laugh actually like that we actually have something called lifestyle medicine. Like lifestyle medicine, what is that? Isn't that all of medicine? How we live? <laughs> Regardless, I'm, I'm glad people are studying and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not happy about that. Dr. Singh, thank you so much for taking time to join with us today. Uh, we welcome and we appreciate all your sharing and your wealth of knowledge and experience. Thank you guys so much for doing this and for um, introducing these topics to people. Um, it's wonderful that there's an interest and for people who are going through, I focus on cancer, but going through cancer treatments and dealing with these issues of their mortality being challenged and thinking about the quality of life and how much life they have. It's really hard to imagine that how much money they have becomes a part of that equation. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we're going to solve the problems that we have. This is Karen Greenstone along with Dr. Rob Stone for Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio in Bloomington, Indiana. To your good health, everyone, stay safe and thank you for listening. We may never see this moment a place in time again If not now, if not now, tell me
Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Green-Stone. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. If you're interested in tuning in on the podcast platform, you can look us up, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB.